These are crazy times for white guys. We are not the most popular people on the planet. Doesn't matter if you grew up rich or poor, in a city, small town, suburbs. If you're a white dude, you know what I'm talking about. We've got some work to do. This podcast is about white guys who are breaking the mold. And they're doing things that are causing a whole new kind of happiness for everybody. Welcome to the new white guy. In this episode, our new white guy is Ben Kowalski Grayheck. I read about Ben in a news story where people were protesting a white supremacist religious group in a small town in Minnesota. The group, called the Asatru Folk Assembly, was applying for a permit to operate in this church. When Ben found out, he made the two and a half hour trip to join the protest. Ben grew up about as white as you can be in a white middle-class family in the very white suburbs of Connecticut. According to him, his life would have been very different if it hadn't been for something he experienced in college. So we'll start there. Here's Ben. I grew up in a uh, upper middle class uh, suburb of New Haven, Connecticut. And that's sort of a thing that sheltered me. I mean, I grew up in a probably 99.9% white uh, town. I knew about people of color mostly from books and movies, you know, and comic books and things like this. Like people of color for me existed um, somewhat mostly in theory. I didn't know about uh, anything about structural racism or any other kind of racism because it just wasn't part of my experience because, you know, when your whole experience is meant to be insulated from seeing that kind of thing, Right. I mean, these these white communities, or at least as, as I'm understanding now, understanding things like redlining and, and things now, looking back on it now, I see that part of the reason these suburbs are constructed the way they are is to insulate people from seeing stuff like this, um, from seeing um, systemic racism. But that's me looking back now. I had no idea. It was only when I had gone to college um, in New Haven, not that college. <laughs> I went to the state college. Um, when I went there, that really was what, that was really what threw me because you now have a a more diverse experience of like, oh my God, you know, here are all these different people from all these different backgrounds. And I'm coming at them with this understanding of, of people of color that is like comically bad. I, I've made, I made so many, so many like little faux pas and and little, little, um, you know, misunderstandings of, of their experience that I kind of look back at it now and go, oh my God. But what really uh, drove it home was um, this experience where I was walking home from, from class. I lived off campus. Um, I was walking home and I, you know, a group of young, a group of young men who were out for, for fun, uh, just beat the holy hell out of me. I mean, like just like, um, busted my eye socket, broke my nose, um, left me pretty much bleeding, uh, in the street after which I kind of picked myself up and go, you know, thank God they just kind of lost interest and they just move on. And I kind of walk myself over to the nearest police station, walk in, tell the officer kind of what happened. Um, you know, officer then calls up an ambulance to come get me. 
And then, you know, two guys, I think two of the officers then left to go, you know, investigate, I guess. And I'm just kind of sitting there debriefing with them. Um, and then a couple minutes later, ambulances arrived. And also uh, the, the other officers had come back. And the other officer said, hey, um, we found one of these, one of these kids who, who was in that group. The group of guys was probably, they couldn't have been older than 18. I'd probably say ranges from like 14 to 18. So we found one of these kids. And I said, okay. They said, we want you to identify him as, as one of the guys who, who was involved, if you can. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah, sure, of course. And they kind of dragged me out driving me in front of him. And I, I can't forget what this kid looked like. He was this very chubby um, uh, black uh, kid. He, he looked like he was barely, a, barely a teenager. You know, he, he, he looked so young to me. But one thing I couldn't say is I, I, I couldn't say whether or not he was one of the people who was involved with the, the beating. And his mother was there or who I assumed as his mother was an older woman uh, and a younger woman were just kind of sitting there screaming about like how, you know, you came in and grabbed my son. What did, what did he do? What did he do? And they dragged me out and kind of point to him and say, is this one of the guys who beat you? And I look at him, he's in tears. He's like sobbing. He, I, I, he had no idea what was going on or at least I assume he had no idea what was going on. It seems like he was super confused and upset. And I of course couldn't tell, <laughs> I didn't know. Um, you know, I could, in, in looking at him, like in all honesty, I would probably say, no, I didn't see him, you know, but I didn't know. And so I told the officer, no, I can't identify him. And the officer kind of said, are you, you know, kind of leans in like, are you sure? And I said, uh, I mean, I'm not sure, but I, I, I'm not going to say yes, because I'm not sure. And the guy said, well, look, if, if you don't identify him, uh, we can't hold him and uh, detain him and question him about his, his friends who may have done this. And I go, oh, okay. So I'm think so right now I'm being asked basically to identify a kid, um, even though I I in all honesty can't identify him, um, just so that j just to kind of move this process along. And who knows what's going to happen to him, right? Who knows what's going to happen if I were to to identify him, right? Who knows if he gets you know thrown in jail or something or juvie or, or whatever, and if he had nothing to do with this, you know? I'm like, I, no, I said no, I'm not gonna. You know, I don't know. I don't know if he was there. I no, I'm not going to identify him. So they throw me in the back of a ambulance and you know take me to the hospital and and I never saw that kid again. Um, it, it was something that was very jarring to me because up until that point, you know, I was one of those guys who said things like, you know, structural racism that doesn't exist. You know, it's just people making excuses for why they can't succeed in life, right? Or um, you know, that's, that's all done. That was done in my parents' generation. There's no racists anymore, you know, or, or racists are bad people, right? They're all the bad people. We know who those guys are. And if what I believed was true, 
then what I just experienced couldn't happen. And I'll be honest with you, I spent some time sitting there convincing myself that it didn't happen. (laughs) Maybe I just didn't read that right. But it kept coming up in my mind as like, no, wait, this is this is really what I was asked. This is this is really what happened. You know, do I think that this officer was, you know, Mr. Racist KKK, you know, clan guy just on duty? No, I don't think so. He could have just been someone that said, look, I just want to wrap this case up and I need and I'm just gonna, you know, maybe he did think that I can get something out of this kid. You know, result would have been this kid would have gone to, you know, would have gone to juvie, would have been thrown into the criminal justice system. And then you got one more kid who's who's um, who's now in the pipeline. Right. All based on my based on my judgment of, of what I thought I saw that night, which would have been faulty. That was the moment where I said, I'm I'm, I'm wrong about something because that shouldn't happen. So it was from there there on that I started um, getting more education on the on the race issue and just trying to get my head around what's the thing that explains all this. And um, eventually through research and asking questions, uh, stumbling upon, you know, racist theory, uh, theory of white supremacy, colonial theory. Uh, I was also a philosophy guy. Um, so I was asking questions all the time, asking different people, different stuff. And, and eventually, uh, the theory of, of racism and white supremacy, I'm like, yeah, this is, this is what I would expect if all these facts are true. How Um, old, how old were you? I was probably, uh, 20. So I was 22 when that happened. And by the time I kind of came around to, um, knowing about the, theory of structural racism i probably was like 26 or 27 um when i finally kind of got it it took a long time like it's it's not something that you you know oh i just read a book and suddenly it, it clicked it just it took a long time of onboarding more kinds of experiences that kind of confirmed it for me and also just talks with friends you know like i had i was getting you know i was getting older my circle of friends was expanding to include more people of color so, you know, talking to them and then being patient with me was something that, that helped. If I had to pick the one incident that kind of started it, it was that. Because if that hadn't happened, I probably would have just been sitting, sitting in my bubble. Like, yeah, yeah, racism doesn't exist. <laughs> white supremacy doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, there might be white supremacists, but they have to be consciously that. There's no unconscious um, system at work here that just does what it does. Wow, that's a that's an amazing story. I I I like how you highlighted how long it took you to actually kind of wake up and get the root of it. This is something that's happened to me, where it's like I read a book, I read two books, I, I have a stack of books on white supremacy and racism that's like a foot high. And I have to actually reread the books, look at them again and again to go, is this, how is it that this, that is real? Everything I learned as a young person in my little white neighborhood was the opposite. So I'm like, then that means that all those people weren't telling the full truth or didn't know the whole truth. Like, what is the deal? 
it's it's crazy because you can be as educated as you want to be but until you kind of get that school of life type stuff happening it's not going to click you can you can deny what's in a book but you can't deny what's in front of your face and so you know one of the things about you know theory of white supremacy and things that gave me this context to understand like look you know this isn't about something like white guilt or or something like that it's just about facts just historical fact that you know brought that group of guys together yeah. brought me to that neighborhood at that time and made that interaction happen the way it did and then the following interactions after that perpetuating that same system that's going to result in that happening again you know 10 20 years down the road that could still be happening because this cycle just keeps going yeah these are built in inequities and the system functions by design system's going to do what it's going to do i'm wondering like for for you there's pros and yeah. cons to being the the most privileged class in our culture you're you're like a straight white male family man in your mm -hmm. in your 30s got the good job you got you know you're comfortable there's pros and cons to being uh, awake and active for social justice yeah. what are some of the what are what are those pros and cons i've had these moments where I have all sorts of friend groups from all different times in my yeah. life. And one of my concerns is when I'm hanging with my certain group of friends who are a little less aware of some of these issues, uh, yeah. here is John again, harshing my mellow. Hey, why do we have to talk about this again? Why can't you just <laughs> drink your beer mellow. and yeah. we'll talk about hockey? And yeah, that, right, sh right. that should be okay. Yeah. I Have I ever gotten to a situation where it's like, okay, Ben, you know, time to turn it off. Um, not explicitly, no, but, you know, there are spaces that you walk into where people are going to feel comfortable kind of letting their, letting their guard down, letting a little bit of that, um, uh, that overt racism start slipping out. You're at your job and it's your boss who lets that slip. What are you going to do? Like, are you going to, are you going to go and be the guy to tell your boss, Hey boss, you know what you just said, that's racist. Like you're going to be the guy to do that. Yeah, that's hard. But what if you're in a space where it's, you know, it's like your brother or your, your cousin, where there's no real like power hierarchy at play, where you've got really no risk, you know, your only risk is just kind of damaging that relationship, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where your job's not at stake if you don't play along. Yeah. I mean, I've been in situations where I've had to tell someone something's not funny. And man, let me tell you. If someone's going off on a racist tirade, make some racist joke, the worst thing you can say to them is something not funny. Because man, that yeah. thing goes off in their brain. It, it suddenly goes from they were joking to all of a sudden they're in your face about something. So yeah, you have to be able to, you, you have to be that guy. The, hard, the harder stuff, I think, is confronting the kind of stuff you see every day in people that you know and care about yeah. and relationships that you have to preserve. That's tough dealing with your own family, dealing with your workplace, dealing yeah. with, you know, friends, uh, that, that's hard. And especially if you've grown up in an area where that's all your friends, you yeah. know, that's everybody, you know, yes, you know, everybody, you know, has got that subtle, that subtle thing. And now you're the weird one. Yes. Right? Now you're the odd guy out. So 
all respect to people who people who do just say, you know what, I got to speak up. I got to say something. So all respect to those guys. So like 10 years later, in December 2020, when Ben heard that a white supremacist group wanted to set up church in the small town of Murdoch, Minnesota, he felt compelled to do something about it. He decided to go protest. I was contacted by a friend of mine uh, who had said that the Ossetru Folk Assembly was uh, purchasing this church. And at first I kind of shrugged, you know, okay, so they're buying something. I don't know how serious this is or, or whatever, or how this is going to go, but then they actually did it. And then the permitting process began. And then things started getting much more serious. And so I started thinking, okay, I should, I should really become involved here. I should really step in because I'm in Minnesota. You know, this, this is my backyard. Um, so I should get in contact with the people in Murdoch and see what I can do. Uh, I got in contact with the head of the Murdoch Area Alliance Against Hate. And they had just said, you know, your presence is really what we're looking for. Uh, so I said, sure, I'll come on down. So it's like a two and a half hour drive uh, down to Murdoch and, you know, brought my signs, stood on the side of the road and, uh, and went over to City Hall, did our part to protest. The vote did not go uh, the way we had hoped, but, you know, you don't, you can't, you cannot win them all. <laughs> as, a, as you know, when, uh, if you've been involved in protests before, it sometimes does not go your way. Uh, and yeah, and now we are, you know, doing what we can to mitigate the influence of folkish white nationalism uh, in our, both in the Twin Cities area, through the Twin Cities Area Alliance Against Hate, and in Murdoch, Minnesota, and in Wilmer. Wow. So you drove two and a half hours from your comfortable home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you didn't have to do that. No. No. Um, well, one could simply just let it slide, right? You could sit there and say, oh yeah, you know, what happens in Western Minnesota doesn't affect me. The fact of the matter is um, most of the people involved in the, the building of this project, most of them are from the Twin Cities. You know, most of them are from, are from our area here. So the, the thought that this is, oh, this is just a Western Minnesota problem. No, oh, they're all just a bunch of blah, blah, blahs or whatever. Um, it's not true. Um, it's it's a problem that starts in the it starts at home in the Twin Cities, and they found an opportunity out west to buy this this church on the cheap, and um, and then you know work their way into this small town. So you know this this church did happen. The permitting process went through, and I feel like it was. Uh, my duty to go out there um, and protest. So you went there, you protested, mm -hmm. you didn't even get the result you wanted. Nope. It's to some of us kind of amazing that a permitting process would go through for a whites only church, you know, a, a church that's only going to let white people in, especially so close to the Twin Cities, especially right after the George Floyd thing happened. It's really kind of like, you're kidding. And you went there, you said it's like your moral obligation. How did you feel 
when you were protesting and when you had come back home? Like, how was it, what was it like for you? Um, when protesting, um, I just hoped that whatever, whatever I did, whatever I said to any uh, press or um, whatever my presence brought would help in some way the people who were on the ground, the people that were gonna actually have to live with this reality uh, should this come to pass. And to let them know that they're not alone and to let them know that there are people outside of this area who do care and are very much invested in this particular project and to lend my voice to theirs. And um, I didn't expect that my voice would be the one to, to, tip, to tip the scales, but you, you don't know. When you go to a protest, when you go to any action, you don't exactly know what the result's going to be. Um, you do it anyway. So my goal was to simply lend my voice. My goal was to simply lend support, uh, both moral uh, support and um, and just with, with my presence. I know enough about this stuff where I can speak on it and someone needs to. Yeah. Someone needs to say this isn't a normal thing and uh, it, it shouldn't slip under the radar. I really appreciate you sharing your story today, Ben. Uh, it's an inspiring story because it hits you at such a young age. And I, I mean, I'm much further along in my experience. I don't know that I would have made sense of things the same way you did when you were in your early 20s. It, it's really inspiring. So thank you for taking time to, to oh, visit. And, and thank you for organizing this. It's important work that you're doing. So I appreciate it. All right. So we've reached the end of this new White Guy episode. If you like what you heard, tell a friend and subscribe. To find out more about us, things you can do, ways to connect with other new white guys, check out our website at thenewwhiteguy.com. If this was your first step towards being a new white guy, we hope it's the first of many. Someone needs to say this isn't a normal thing. It, it shouldn't slip under the radar. Hey, just want to give a special thanks to the new White Guy team who make this podcast happen. Editor Peggy Poor, may or may not be related to me, and advisors Patrick Brown and Travis Burdick. <laughs>